0: Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds. Welcome,
1: everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. My name is Gary Cocholillo, your host. And today we have Sebastian Shug. Uh, He's from Burbank, California. He is an author, illustrator, Narrator and publisher. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Gary. (laughs) Happy to be here.
1: Awesome. Um, so you've been pretty busy, you've accomplished quite a lot. Um, how did you get into author all these different types of publishing?
2: So I began at a actually i began at fifteen where I was just a standalone illustrator for a children's book back when I was about a sophomore in high school and where that led uh eventually was me trying to tell my own stories uh essentially my own way and through trial and error working with different sort of vanity publishers and um d- Non-cost-efficient ways to do it uh, is where I really created my own path. And uh, soon I would have people wanting to publish their books. So I began to morph from illustration solely uh, and writing solely into many different aspects. So we have illustration, writing, publishing, narration, uh, which all fall, fall under the umbrella of my independent publishing company, Sebastian Shug Publishing. <laughs> so um, you know, I, I end up doing a lot with the, the skills that I do have. Artists, authors, photographers often come in wanting to publish their book. And it's really built this sort of uh artistic community. And I'm I'm very thankful for that.
1: Since you were 15.
0: Man, 15 years I,
1: old. I think I was just like skateboarding when I was 15. <laughs> Um, So are you like, do you do it all yourself? Do you have employees that work for you?
2: Currently I do um, do this all myself. Uh, I am a one man job when it comes to processing uh, manuscripts, designing covers narrating and really just sort of making myself expendable to the point of, you know, I'm not afraid to tackle new mediums essentially. So if I can put myself in a position to be utilized, then yeah, no, let's, let's go for it. Sky's the limit.
1: It's a lot of work. Uh, I I know I've, I've self-published my own book. It's called enlightenment guaranteed. And, um, the process of writing it was actually kind of brief. It took me about six months to write it. And then it took me
2: about a year of editing. Mm -hmm. Is that common? (laughs) that is very, very common. Um, traditionally you are artists and authors have an idea, uh, that they know front to back and then they put it on paper. Um, personally editing is the fun part because it's where you, you get to really pick and choose what you like and what you don't like. And the publishing Avenue of it all is sort of the home stretch. Uh, that's actually pretty impressive. Six months to complete the book. Uh, what did you say the title was again? It's called Enlightenment Guaranteed, the only
1: book on Zen you'll ever need. Okay. Uh, yeah, I used to be like <laughs> an ordained uh, Zen lay practitioner monk.
2: Uh, ah, okay.
1: Yeah. I, I I'll say like my, my book was probably originally about 150 pages and what I published in the end was 78 <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's usually how it goes. <laughs> I mean it's it's no like strike against like the content, but it's more so the the author being like, Well, I don't really need this, so I'll take it out. And I mean, hey, you publish the book that you want to publish and that's sort of the name of the game. I suppose
1: I did, but now it's been about four or five years since I wrote it, and I go back and I look at it, and I'm like I don't know if I should have wrote this.
2: <laughs> hey, no one does. All right. I still I still hate the first thing I ever wrote and self-published. Um, but the truth is I would never delist it because I mean it really is a testament of how far you've come, you know. So if you can get over that sort of self beaten down hurdle, then you know honestly where can you go from there but up?
1: Yeah. Um Actually, lately, I've been trying to start a blog and I've been hitting some writer's block. Do you have any suggestions?
2: I do. Um, Well, actually, just really one solid piece of advice I give to anyone who asks, but it's the procrastination is key argument. And by procrastinate, I don't mean to just stop doing what you love to do altogether, but it's to focus on different topics all at the same time. Uh, That way your writing never gets stale because you always have different talking points. And in the instance of, oh, I can't write about this because I don't know what to say, you then shift to the other talking point. Uh, In this case, the other blog post or the other topic. And uh, I sometimes find myself working personally on about three to four projects at a time, uh, interchanging them because I know how dull and boring it gets to see a book all the way through to the end, at least on day one of drafting it. So having those different, those different genres, those different stories to bounce between um, it really has helped me.
1: So, so you can kind of like work on one project and do something else and kind of
2: exactly the one
1: thing going on. Cause like I did that too. Well, actually, I didn't do that, and that's one of the things that I think I haven't written written another book is because I was solely working on that one book for that entire six months. And I really started to, after a while. I would say after about two or three months, I started to feel disconnected.
2: Right. Yeah. You start to resent the whole process because it, it becomes less of a passion project and more of a job. Yeah. You know. You know, scheduling to and there's nothing wrong with scheduling time to sit down and write the book or to draft it or illustrate it or whatever you need to do but when you wake up and you say to yourself oh you know i gotta do this book today when you're already thinking in that mindset you you've kind of already lost the drive to do so so that's why i recommend working on shorter projects taking some time away reformatting it restructuring it um, yeah, no, it, it's it's helped in the past considerably because it the ability to focus on other things at the same time is kind of a skill in itself. Uh, when it comes to multitasking and yeah. doing so in this instance is it's very beneficial.
1: That's what I've been doing now with the podcast. Like I'll, I'll focus a little bit for or Two for looking on looking for guests, and then I'll maybe like go and you know, mess around, try to make some new graphics and stuff like that. And then I'll do a little bit of promotion on Facebook, you know, sending out links, you know, that kind of stuff. And then I'll go back to actually recording a podcast, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and it's just like this little cycle.
2: It all ties into each other. And at the end of the day, you still feel productive. And I think that's what the most important part is.
1: And also learning. I, I think the more, I do creative projects. The more I learn, and the better I hone my skills too. And I, I'm sure, sure that I know I know that's true for for writers and
2: any type of artist. Right. No. Exactly.
1: Um, how about the illust- illustrating? Um, do you do it on computer? Do you draw by hand?
2: Uh, yes. Yeah, so it's all by hand. It is now shifted to digitally solely. Um, I used to. Uh, freehand it on paper, scan it, and then digitally uh, remaster them to uh, be the pages of the book, so to speak. Now I've just streamlined that through the applications that I use, primarily Photoshop. Uh, I'm sure I'll get many comments saying why it is or it isn't the best application. Hey, I use what I use. (laughs) Mm. And, um, you know, yeah, you just work through there. And I am all self-taught. Uh, I remember vividly, I took one art class in college and that was my last art class I ever took in college (laughs) because uh, it's not all that's cracked up to be when you're being told how to do something that you already know how to do. Now, of course, I'm no expert in it, but to have such a rigid outline of what's expected of you in something so subjective as art... Uh, Yeah, needless to say, it wasn't my cup of tea, and uh, promptly switched majors after that. (laughs) Because did did you find
1: like the art class like almost like stifling creativity rather than encouraging it?
2: Hit the nail on the head. Yeah, you. I I have not met a more um, superficial crowd of people than than college artists.
1: I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, does your public does your publishing company have a specific genre that you do or are you open to anything like could I write a book and publish it through you?
2: Well, of course. So <laughs> so the, the the great thing I think about my publishing company and you know this isn't to self-brag, but in the age of marketing, you have to sell yourself. So, uh, yeah. So Sebastian Shug Publishing is non-genre specific. Uh, I've had genres from fiction to satire to children's book, um, series, all the way up to black poetry, which as a Caucasian male is obviously something that I'm not in tune to, or at least I wasn't until I had, uh, my author who specializes in it, bring that to the table, you know, anecdotes, quotations, anything and everything. And yeah, to, to answer your hypothetical question, uh, if you had a manuscript, feel free to send it my way. And, uh, I work one-on-one with my clients as well. So I I give them a, uh, a contract that best suits their needs. Uh, something that I like to set, do to set myself a- apart from the rest, from the other vanity publishers, who I won't name names here, but it is in direct response of how I do business versus them, is I never charge any upfront costs mm-hmm. because to charge an arm and a leg for a product to potentially, and I mean this very rigidly when I say potentially, you know, bold, italic, whatever you need to do, to potentially be placed in stores, not a guarantee, and to not garner any royalty amount equivalent to that of which you spent in order to get the book in store, which is about a couple thousand, give or take, I did not want to be that type of person running my business. So no upfront cost and 95% royalty payment back. If your book happens to sell, uh, most people ask how this business even works but, uh, you got to understand ideal in bulk. Whereas I have many titles all being sold at once and the, uh, that 5% on my end, it certainly adds up with the uh, amount of volume I have.
1: So that's a win-win situation compared to a lot of people that I know that have worked with publishers. I know people that have lost money working with publishers. I know people that are selling lots of books but not getting any royalties. Mm -hmm. Um, I've heard all kinds of stories. And then I hear those same people say, I'm not going to self publish because you know, I'm not a, like a genuine writer.
2: Well, th- the the thing about self publishing and I think what sets my, my company apart from the rest is self publishing by definition is writing a book, publishing it through a uh, vanity or boutique source, and then physically printing out copies in order to hand sell. Mm-hmm. So that is self publishing. you, you give a price right then and there, and a person decides right then and there if they want to buy it. Of course, that's a total crapshoot because if you take into account printing costs, your book may not sell, and you just spent all this money, and now you have to liquidate it if you want to get rid of it. Uh, With myself, it's very brick and mortar where different distribution channels will carry the book And the percentage I get back when someone makes a sale is directly funneled into what I'm paying out to my authors, whether that be through Amazon, through Barnes and Noble, Apple, Google, many first, second, and third party retail services uh, will have their own uh, price matching or price uh, calculators. And I just work off that. And, um, you know, my clients, they, they think that's, Fair.
1: Yeah, it's very fair. Um, who is your favorite author?
2: As of now, uh, <laughs> my favorite author is, uh, is Mark Twain, um, which sort of ties into how I sort of started it all, uh, especially as a writer. I focused primarily in satire, more, more specifically dark comedy satire and reading his books growing up understanding what they meant in terms of American, you know, prominent American literature. Look, I never wrote with the aspiration to be someone big. Okay. I wrote because I wanted to share a perspective that I thought was humorous that would inexplicably turn a few heads because maybe the content wasn't up to snuff with, with what they were used to. And that's okay. I've since focused my author- authorial talents into uh, lowbrow comedic satire, which I think is a genre criminally underrepresented. Um, you you pick up one of these books and you go in expecting a laugh, and it's one of those. Oh, I get it now. It's funny, you know. Like it, it, the joke kind of sticks with you a little bit, and. I feel like a lot of people attempt to do highbrow satire and fall flat because the expectation is placed upon them that they have to come off as some sort of uh, smart individual. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you could, you could very well hold yourself to that standard, but at the end of the day, if you miss the joke, you miss it hard and you come across, you come off as, you know, unintelligent if, if it's not funny. Mm -hmm. So I say, forget that. Let's make it funny regardless.
1: <laughs> See what sticks. You ever read anything like um, Kurt Vonnegut or Charles Bukowski? Oh, Those Cat's are my two Cradle.
2: favorites. Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse-Five are among some of my favorite books. I like of Breakfast
1: time. of Champions. That's...
2: <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go.
1: But yeah, I, I definitely love that style of writing. You know, it, it's not; it doesn't go over a person's head. It's sometimes it's silly, but also, you know, those certain type of writers like they don't shy away from reality or anti-heroism and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, no, and that's that's something that exists in our world today. And for people. For it to fly over people's heads, I'm not sure if people are, you know, sort of blissfully or willfully ignorant of the world around them, but the bad stuff that's happening to this world needs to be called out in some way or another. And whether or not you want to take it from a serious approach or from a comical approach like I'm doing, I just want to make sure that that message gets across in some way or another.
1: You know, I'm from New Jersey, and I live in Fairhope, Alabama. So I tend to have, like, this really sarcastic sense of humor. And, um, you know, it's dark. I mean, it's just who I am. And sometimes I'll I'll do dark humor down here, and people will just look at me, like, in shock.
2: (laughs) It's Hey, it's doing its job. That's what it's supposed (laughs) to do, so...
1: (laughs) Like when the riots were going on, I was hanging out with some friends and they were like, Oh yeah, I don't know about these riots. So I'm like, Man, I love riots. This burns some shit down. And they're like
2: <laughs> <laughs> And see and see nobody nobody wants to laugh at that because nobody wants to be vilified as, you know, the bad guy. But you're not the bad guy. You're just calling attention to what's in the news and you're doing it in a way that brings light to the situation so really are you the bad guy no no plus i mean i have
1: actually been in some riots and when i was younger and it was exhilarating
0: Mm -hmm.
1: i i mean there's there's a reason i mean well one of his aspects to it i think is is obviously making a point and sending a message um but i think also it gives people a chance to feel a freedom that they don't normally get to feel.
2: Mm -hmm. Definitely.
1: Um, So you've had some paranormal experiences, correct?
2: I have some, some unexplained occurrences. Yes.
1: So are you ready to share them?
2: I'm ready to get into it. (laughs) All right. (laughs) You know, and it's it's like I said before we we started recording this. I've been sitting on this one particular instance going on about ten, fifteen years now. So that's a long time trying to trying to attempt to get answers for something like this, and I'll preface this by myself stating that I want to try to go as in-depth as possible uh, in an attempt to I'll obviously recall it as best as possible, but to hopefully get some answers. Okay. Um, When it comes down to like personal privacy in this story, I really don't care. I mean, at this point, I've been on the internet publishing since I was 15. So (laughs) if if there's something about my identity that people somehow don't know, they're going to know now. So, you know, just brace yourself. Here we go. Um, I used to grow up at this intersection in Burbank, California. And uh, for listeners who know where this is, it's on 6th and Cedar in Burbank. It's near Joaquin Miller Elementary School. Now, I used to live in this townhouse up the road, and it sported about 8 to 10 tenants. And little eight year old me is trying to piece together what he wants to do in life. And shocker, it's wanting to draw pictures. Oh, little did he know. But anyway, <laughs> uh, we, we get introduced to a neighbor who had just moved from Australia and the thick Australian accent. If that didn't give it away, it was the sense of adventure that this, uh, this single mother and this boy had a uh, boy's name was, I, I believe, Chase you know, and for sake of anonymity, I don't remember his last name. So, you know, try to find that needle in the haystack. But they were the adventurous type and they invited me one day to uh, take a hike with them. All right, sure. Uh, People I barely know, let's go. (laughs) I'm kidding. We knew each other for a while. But we had been hiking up the street and that street, if uh, to people who know where that is, it leads directly into the mountains. So you end up going uphill regardless. Nothing is out of the ordinary yet. And we're walking, we pass by a few, I want to say, abandoned houses. Um, nothing too terrifying. And eventually we end up on a, a, a T intersection where in front of us, past past the street is a densely wooded area. I'm assuming that this is Burbank still because all we did was walk and, you know, we didn't really drive anywhere, but the mother of the child of the neighbor, uh, she said that she would come pick us up after. So two eight year olds in the middle of a forest or at the beginning of a of the forest saying oh yeah i'll go get the car and she just left us be we go into the forest and my god this is all coming back to me so vividly we go into the forest and it's pretty dense it's pretty foggy and there's really no general sense of direction but we eventually stumble upon uh, a building look library of some sort uh if i can remember there was some sort of Pathway up ahead, but there's nobody here. It's just the two of us and uh, This building we walk up to it Locked Dark nothing's inside looks about the same as your standard office but We we began to hear this faint Droning sound coming from behind us and We turn around and all of a sudden, along the perimeter, and again, not joking, I remember this clear as day. I really don't have any other way to explain this, but along the perimeter of the building and around the garden as it was, were these black hooded figures standing, like synchronized from one another, okay? the droning that we heard was it sounded almost like an off-key violin to some extent and i tried approaching one of them because they weren't there before like we mm. didn't walk up already having seen these these right. figures but we i tried walking up to one of them and the one that i walked up to outstretched its hand to me and this hand was by no means human by any stretch of the imagination because it was completely devoid of any color. It was gray and Chase just pulls on the back of my neck and he's like, all right, we got to get out of here. So we run through the forest and then we meet up with his mom who drives us to go get dinner and we don't talk about it. We don't say anything. We don't do anything you know, hooded figures can't see the face, but skin was as gray as the, you know, the winter outside, like the sky outside when it's wintertime. And we just don't talk about it. Um, I end up moving out of that house a few years after with my mom. Uh, if I can remember something sort of, maybe it's not too far off of the realm of possibilities i did think that uh this boy and this mother were i really don't know how to say this without sounding politically incorrect but i don't think she was the best parent Mm -hmm. i think that they were maybe on the run from something uh Going into their apartment for the first time was also the last time I went into their apartment because you could see trash littered everywhere, food strewn about, dishes lined up. Um, it looked like they had moved there and either were hoarding something or were hiding something. Uh, again, I I really don't know how much that feeds into it, but if that's what made him a fan of the occult, so be it. Uh, Regardless, we end up moving out, I carry on with my life, I go through high school, I um, end up dating this girl who has, um, it was a, nowadays is an ex-girlfriend of mine, who, you know, we still maintained a friendship with, and she began to take interest in this story that I used to tell as well, because she didn't understand it either, and her family is big into the supernatural as well. So when I told her, she said, I think that there's a forest up where you're saying there is. And I'm like, great, let's go to it. Couldn't find it for the life of us. So we, end, we even end up going to my old house and the tenants that were there are still there except for uh, Chase and the mother. Who knows where they are at this point? Dead end. So we just kind of pack our losses and and go home. What was and,
1: there instead of a forest? Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, what was there instead of a forest?
2: Was it buildings? A neighborhood? It was just. It was just the neighborhood. It was. It was about where I want to say. Um, oh God, uh, Bel Air Boulevard. Where it, it's just a thorough like a through street going all the way up and down the hills with like palm trees and the ritziest houses you could ever you could ever see like these were like the rich of the rich in burbank and i could have sworn 10 years ago that you know maybe these houses weren't here or maybe they were put here you know who knows a lot can happen in a decade and a half but um yeah like this forest wasn't here and Keep in mind the the green areas that you'd see on a map, like indicating where forests should be. There are no documented buildings. There are no documented landmarks, and uh, much to sort of Google Maps dismay of you know dropping that little person uh, into the map to get like uh, like a three sixty view mm-hmm. that wasn't that wasn't even offered either. So I'm I'm completely stuck. And here I am sort of second-guessing myself, thinking that, oh, well, maybe it was in Glendale. Maybe it was in Pasadena. No, I, I can't find anything that sort of matches this. Maybe, maybe someone can, but I can't. Um, so fast forward 10 years. I'm 18 years old now, and I am seeing this other girl who is also an ex-girlfriend of mine. And her friends are also very big into the occult. And we're in their car one night just sort of chatting it up, and uh, one of her friends, who was a quote-unquote self-proclaimed psychic, uh, he sort of tipped me off. um, Not ticked me off, tipped me off, because uh, when he said what he said next, it really sort of made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Uh, Before that, he said that a little Indian girl was in the car with us, a ghost, and um, his house was built on like reservation land. So, all right, cool. Uh, but what he said next, because here I am telling this story to him, and he says, you know, that's that's a funny thing that you mentioned because I've been there. Uh, me being me, I'm so wrapped up in someone familiar with this, I don't even bother to ask where it's located. Uh, But I ask for, you know, his story and he says, yeah. So where that building is located, just a few meters outward uh, is a barn. It's an abandoned barn or some sort of shaft. And he was there doing some like photography or videography work with a buddy of his. And all of a sudden, while they're doing their thing, uh, a ball bounces into where they are and a child comes after it. Uh, looks at him, looks at his friend, gets the ball, goes out. As soon as this kid rounds the corner, he disappears. And I'm like, well, was it a kid who genuinely lost his toy? And he's like, no, he was a ghost. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) All right, then. So we're dealing with, like, land that's been haunted or what? Because he, he... mention nothing of what would i what i would now proclaim to be some sort of cult okay uh by the way these people were dressed i don't think it could be anything else you know i do feel that looking back i do feel as if that if we were to stick around if i hadn't been pulled away i probably would have been in some sort of danger but You know, unfortunately, that's just kind of where my story ends. I I wish I had a bit of a payoff, but I'm I'm stumped. I really am. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, I've been sitting on this for 15 years now.
1: Yeah, I mean, a a human, a, a cult doesn't explain the gray skin.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I keep thinking about. The time we went, it was early evening. Everything was sort of shrouded in a little bit of fog. But then I think back to that. I'm like, no, this was in the middle of June. Okay. How did this little secured off area, this secured off densely wooded area, have this sort of aura around it? And... You know, I I kind of went the more like, uh, I don't know if I should say like basic route and thought that it was the enchanted forest that's listed on Google as like being the number one spot of, uh, you know, uh, paranormal happenings going on in like Burbank, California. I'm like, okay, that has to be it. But Mm -hmm. there's no building there. And I know what I saw. I know what I peered into when I peered into the window. I saw a desk, some bookshelves, uh a portrait above the desk. Like it was it was about as close to the front office of a college as you could have expected. You know, walking into like an admissions office.
1: Do you remember what the portrait was of? It was
2: of again, I hate to sound so general, but it was It was a Caucasian male, white hair, you know, had a suit. It was very Jacksonian, like very presidential. I want to say maybe 1800s portrait kind of look, but it was in color. You know, granted, everything was shrouded in a bit of darkness, but there was enough light coming from outside to um, fully illuminate or not fully illuminate, but, you know, cast a light into the, the lobby yeah i I do not know. yeah, it's again, it I wish I could explain it. Uh, I can't. I hope one day before i I leave this planet, I can or at least at least um, uh, find myself knowing things that I didn't, you know, again. Maybe I got the location wrong. Okay, but oh. I'm, I'm, I'm so sure of it that we just walked up the street to, uh-huh. some nth, to some nth degree and hit this forest.
1: How far is the Bohemian Grove from Burbank?
2: The Bohemian Grove, um, I actually don't know that off the top of my head. Is that, is that sort of the...
1: There's, a, there's supposed to be a secret occult group that meets there. Really? Yes. And and, and it's a... They say it's for like the super wealthy and they meet there once a year and they do some type of sacrifice. Oh. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But I don't know the geography of California well enough to... If that's a valid explanation or not um well uh, if you google like bohemian grove conspiracy
2: uh-huh. you will find some stuff on that would you say that it matches sort of the uh the, the testimony i've given or similar
1: like i know like i know that i think they're known for like wearing cloaks and going out in the woods performing some strange ritual
2: yeah i mean th- there wasn't anything indicating like like any kind of like weaponization like mm-hmm. they didn't they didn't carry knives with them right? right and part of me wants to believe that this was some sort of uh prank insinuated by whoever the hell was leading this because all that all that they were carrying um you know i came to find out after going closer to these people that they were in fact carrying violins they were just playing them very off key you know that, that the, still
0: sort
1: of fits within the bohemian grove type of behavior
2: okay you know um, it, it says that the bohemian grove it's um it's in Monterio, which unfortunately is in Sonoma County. Uh, it's not, it's relatively far from where yeah. I am. Yeah, I, I mean, oh God, this sounded exactly, I was actually getting a little bit giddy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and, then, and then I noticed the location. I'm like, oh, dang it. But I don't know if it was, if it was that or if it was some other kind of sect then i find myself just keep just keep going in circles
1: right i mean that that would be an explanation if we're dealing with something that's human if we're dealing with something that's not human i mean there's always that possibility that you may have went through some type of vortex into a slightly different dimension than the one that we're currently in Uh, I've talked to a lot of mediums and psychics on my podcast, and a lot of them tell me that um, the veil between our dimension and another dimension isn't as solid or there's not like a big gap like we would like to think.
2: I mean, I believe it. There isn't anything concrete to explain how – sunny it was or at least early evening sunny before we entered versus when we came in when we went into the forest and we couldn't even see the sun okay now i'm not saying it was pitch black but when i say gray misty foggy in an area where it inexplicably shouldn't be you know you'd think that it cast a little bit of rays down but no um it was just so it was so weird. It was literally a, you know, a night-to-day transition. Yes. And and then back into day, as soon as we ran out of the forest.
1: And then there's also, you know, possibly like a holographic reality type of explanation, you know, where people experience a glitch in a matrix, like a mandela effect.
2: <sighs> yeah. At first, I thought this whole thing was a Mandela effect. You know, me thinking that, oh, this didn't really happen. I'm just remembering it differently. But I could understand if it was one hooded figure that stood out to me in my mind and I just saw it wrong or I saw it in a photograph. But being honest, there were about maybe 20 to 35 surrounding the perimeter. You know, who knows where they came from. And I'm talking about a window of time that the organization of this um, form that they were in shouldn't have been possible, okay? Walking up to the main window to peer inside for, I want to say, maybe seven to ten seconds of getting a real thorough look through the window to take a step back and find these figures standing in synchronicity playing the violin it's like where do they come from and that's what sort of boggles my mind it's like you would have heard them if it was a forest but no one one minute they're not there the next minute violin and suddenly there they are
1: another theory you know how, like you say, matter doesn't... Like, nothing is solid. Everything is just sort of vibration. Mm, Maybe yeah. there's beings in another dimension, and in a way that you saw is actually some type of vi- device that changes the vibration of their reality, which made it appear in our reality.
2: So they... It, yes. was, it was almost like on cue like they were waiting for someone in order to well, trigger maybe,
1: maybe it was just um, I want to say like waiting for somebody but maybe um, they were using vibration or experimenting with vibrations in order to move through different types of realities and you just happened to be there at that right time to experience huh. them
2: yeah well myself and like I stated, the, the guy who backed up my story as well, I mean, he, he was on the same plot of land and he experienced, I think, more vividly a paranormal, ex, you know, a paranormal experience uh, of a child.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't, again, I don't know if this is some sort of triggered event where something needs to set it off, but I'm very much open to the possibility that it could be.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't think that the violin, I think the violin into sound is probably something significant to what you experienced. Um, I yeah, mean, I mean, I, it could it could even be like, like a vibration that, you know, not only make brings their reality closer to us, but brings our reality or our consciousness, even a perception closer uh-huh. to them. And it was just a, sort of like we meet, we meet in the middle, sort
2: of. Yeah, I, I can definitely, I, I could see that happening. I mean, at least in terms of having something that's distinguishable and recognizable, you know, audibly, because because there was no way I there was no way you couldn't hear this. So if it if it was a means to make their presence known, they they did that tenfold. <laughs> so to speak,
1: maybe they um, needed it to make the presence known. You know, maybe it was the the change in vibration that caused them to appear.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe it was some kind of tool. Yeah. No. And and at eight, you know, at eight years old, I, I'm surprised I didn't get more creeped out than I should have. Um, if I can remember correctly, we actually like tore away back out of the forest, like sort of with a smile on our face as if we found, you know, the coolest thing ever. And little did I know that 15 years later, it still would be, you know, the coolest thing to ever grace my subconscious. Um, but, you know, I, I wasn't stupid. I could tell that they wanted us out of there to some degree. Uh, you know, all that's left is that I wish I could know where this was. More importantly, I wish that I knew of a way to trigger it to happen again. Right.
1: I I think the way to, to first begin is to find people that have had that same experience, uh, well, and then the, start
2: putting them together. Look for yeah. that common denominator. You know, that's the thing. The the common denominators you know, out of the two that exist in the world, one is God knows where, and the other is God knows where, (laughs) you know, I, I wish I could get in contact with, uh, chase or the guy with the paranormal experience. Um,
1: again, Chase's last name.
2: I don't, that's the thing. And even though I know where this, uh, this townhouse is, because obviously I grew up there. Um, I mean, for God's sake, I, I said the crossroads in the beginning of this story. Um, how this townhouse is structured is that uh, to get to the back, you would actually need to go through the front yard. Uh, and by front yard, I literally mean just like a patio deck of the first tenants um, house. If you don't know the first tenant kind of screwed, uh, more to the point if you don't know who you're calling and there isn't you know there isn't like a like a directory that shows uh, first names right. do they pay property taxes at that
1: townhouse i believe they do so tax records are public record especially property tax records okay. maybe you could go back and find who you're looking for if you going through the old tax records
2: uh That It's actually not a bad idea The thing is I don't remember the uh, The mother's name Off the top of my head Um Which kind of leaves me Screwed because But we know a year Yeah And and once you see it Maybe you'll remember That's That It's not a bad idea Actually Is there a way to You said it's public record Is there just a way to access it? Yeah you,
1: You go to Um Like each town has a website, Mm -hmm. you know, like their municipal website. And in the municipal website, you can go to the tax records or you can go back and search.
2: Interesting.
1: Because uh, I used to do – well, I I tried to do real estate over here where I'm at now. And one of the ways that real estate agents look for for prospects is going through old tax records.
2: Hmm. Okay. So it's just a matter of finding the record for that uh, year. For that look, year, look through
1: through look at you know go through who's on it and, and see if you see any names that pop out that are familiar.
2: These tax records, they wouldn't have the name of uh, the child. No, would it'd would be the mother. No. It'd be yeah. the mother. Yeah, see that's the thing. Um, oh God! If if only if I had her name, I could pinpoint that. Um,
1: but you might remember it when you see it.
2: That's true, too. Yeah.
1: Because that happens to me all the time. Like, um, just recently, I was just trying to think of uh, somebody's name. Um, he was a, a UFO guy from Pennsylvania. And, um, and then somebody sent me an email. In their email, and, they, and I couldn't think of this for like a while. Somebody sent me an email, and their name was um, Martin Riley. Martin and was like, Oh, that was his name because his name was Riley Martin. Oh, okay. So, but but seeing it jarred my memory into remembering the person that I was trying to think of. Right, right, right. So, because it's probably there in your subconscious so somewhere, or you could even maybe try hypnotism.
2: <sighs> at this point, I'll try. I, now, at I, this point, I, I'll
1: try. I know I know a really good hypnotist. He does it through. Zoom. In fact, I just posted an episode today with him. His name is Lance Baker, hmm. and, and he might be able to, to do something help you get back to that memory and recall the name too.
2: Again, at this point, I will I will try anything because you know I'm not going through my days like. Keep in mind, I'm not going through my days like fiending over finding answers to this but there is something i think that there's a palpable feeling of accomplishment when you have this memory deep within your subconscious that it just it doesn't go away because it's so you can't explain it and as an adult you'd want to ideally go back to that spot to try and get some answers from it problem is is that i know where the starting point is i don't know i know where the starting point is and i know where the ending point is uh the journey is what's killing me because well you're still on that journey i'm still exactly i'm still on that journey and i'm i'm really concerned that any lead i find is just going to come up with a dead end you know i'm worried that one of these days i'm just going to you know buck up go to the house ask for um the person who lived in back which was chase and her mom or dig through public record and find out that these people never even existed and i'm like well all right <laughs> you know it, like that that fear is there because it's like well if i got this wrong hypothetically then what else did I make up along the way? It doesn't like, necessarily mean that either. Like, like, I, like what if it's I, I, all a Mandela effect?
1: Sometimes a dead end really is just more questions. Yeah, it's not actually a dead end. Ain't that the it, truth? It, it just opens
2: up a lot more
1: questions.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't have stated it any better.
1: And I think, as like a, a writer and an author, you know, I think it would be worth pursuing. And then you could tell the story. Yeah,
2: yeah. No, I. And, and I, when
1: you when you like even just begin to do it, you know, get far as you can with it, with your investigation, tell the story, and then see what kind of feedback you get from other people. If other people have that same story, and then start looking for a common denominator.
2: I mean, admittedly, that's why I was drawn to this, this offer of being on this particular show, because I think I've walked away now with, you know, answers that I didn't even consider in the first place, but also the drive to continue pursuing it. Because... In the beginning, this was just sort of a memory that I had, you know, granted, a memory that I've been sitting on it on for a decade and a half, but something that if I never found out the answer to, uh, and, you know, maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. But now that I'm digging more into it, it's these kind of instances that really shape you as a person. And to the tune of you saying, you know, you're a writer, and it would be worthwhile for you to document it. I wholeheartedly agree. Like it's, I don't think that many people have experiences like this and to share that, to, you know, come to a consensus and to, um, uh, to, to pick out what's fact, what's fiction, what's imaginary or what's real. I think is, is why I love this, uh, this community so much. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I love it too because there's so many possibilities. It it drives me crazy to see people think that they understand reality when we have no idea of what reality is. I mean, I'm sitting in a room with four walls that appear to be solid, but they're not solid. I mean, there's particles and waves and all kinds of stuff passing through them passing through me you know i mean it's we live in in a a reality that's completely unexplainable except for a whole bunch of theories but we look at hard science hard science does not answer all the questions
2: oh it really doesn't
1: and there's so much more to be asked and to be figured out you know i mean quantum physics is just at the beginning you know, in the early stages of it. Yeah. Um, So thank you for sharing the story. I I hope I was some help to you.
2: No, it was. It it definitely was. You have, I think, reignited the fire that was this uh, investigation, so to speak. So um, I I can't offer you anything more but my heartfelt thanks because of that.
1: Thank you for coming on. That was a great story. I'm sure, you know, if, my, if my, any of my listeners come back with some feedback, I'll definitely let you know.
2: Please do. Um, yeah.
1: You know, if you do decide to write your story, I'd be more than happy to give you some advice or consult a little bit. with a little bit of knowledge that I have. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, um, hey, I, I, hate, I hope that this isn't too, uh, too corporate, but if there's ever the time where you wanted that, uh, that hypothetical book publishing, Please give me a call.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're gonna have to give me about six months to crank out a book. No worry, hey,
2: no worries. (laughs) You work on your own schedule, but uh, if there's any questions, please feel free to contact me. Ah,
1: you got it, definitely. Um, So, is there anything else you want to plug before we wrap it up?
2: Sure. So, um, I guess in in uh, in terms of. My artistic profile, myself being a publisher, uh, I'll tell you where to find me. So feel free to send me a manuscript at Sebastian Shug Publishing. This can be done online primarily in finding me. And you can send me the the manuscript via email or telephone because we all have smartphones nowadays and I can receive files whenever. Um, When it comes down to additional media, you can find me on YouTube as well under the handle of uh, CBAS. Spelled exactly like the fish. There, I post daily audio narrations as well as a an audio archive under the name of Shugzy's Storytime. That's S C H U G Z Y apostrophe S Storytime. Essentially, it's just like I said, an audio archive of the stories found on YouTube. Uh, you could find me co-hosting additional podcasts such as the Mars on Life podcast as well as the it's all dark matter podcast there. We tackle various artistic and philosophical viewpoints and hot takes on the world around us. If you're a fan of music, which I feel a lot of people are, uh, (laughs) you can find me under the artist profile of shugzy. That's just S C H U G Z Y, uh, low tempo, very calming music, experimental type stuff. Um, yeah, feel free to give it a listen. And with that, once again, thank you so much. Thank you. And that's a wrap. All right.
0: Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. Please like and review this podcast on whatever platform you are using. It helps this podcast move up in the ranks and easier for people to find. Also, tell your friends, family, co-workers, and even that weird uncle i would be that weird uncle. If anyone wants to be a guest, you can email me at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My website is www.everythingimaginable2020.com. And Patreon is patreon.com forward slash everythingimaginable. You can make a donation to support this podcast. Remember, everything that is was first imagined. Thank you for listening, and see you next week. And oh yes, you can also buy my book, Enlightenment Guarantee, the only book on Zen you'll ever need. It's available on Amazon, Kindle, and paperback.